0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick and this is episode 107, April 3rd to April 9th, 1863. Last week we talked about a couple of events including the Richmond Bread Riots and action with D.H. Hill in North Carolina. We also introduced the Vicksburg campaign, and that's going to be coming fast and furious here sooner rather than later, so just stay tuned for more updates from that theater. Well, I think it is pretty fast paced. There are those who do criticize the campaign as being one more of maneuver than anything else. There's not a big Gettysburg at the end of it, so to speak. So it is interesting to see Grant doing some more generaling than normally he gets credit for. And I know that Grant usually has the moniker of being a butcher, and he certainly is going to at least get a little bit of that uh, at the assaults on Vicksburg in May, but we will get there soon enough. No matter how you cut it, it is going to be one of the most important campaigns of the war. This week we're going to head to Charleston Harbor for some naval action, But first, we need to stop in with what is going on in Virginia. Before we do that, I just want to, as always, plug the Patreon. We're going to be posting our newest episode, and that's going to be a movie review, and this one's going to be the uh, John Wayne movie, The Horse Soldiers, and that's going to connect with uh, something we have going on later in the month here. So, if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon, and of course... Your support goes toward the general upkeep of the show and is greatly appreciated. So we have another campaign, as foreshadowed in a previous episode. In the East, the Chancellorsville campaign gets underway. Remember that when we last left off, Ambrose Burnside had been replaced by Joe Hooker. Now, Hooker was not the number one choice. Some wanted to have a third-times-the-charm scenario occur with George B. McClellan. But I will say that Hooker does a good job of trying to fix the problems in the army as well as raise morale. Hooker, a Democrat before the war, was now a political mercenary and would champion the Republican cause. Halleck would not really be involved with Hooker, one of the many changes to the war in the East. We're going to see this illustrated very clearly during the Gettysburg campaign, but Hooker is going to try to communicate effectively directly with Lincoln, and he does so early in his tenure as the Army Commander of the Army of the Potomac. So obviously that's not really going to rub old brains the right way there. Fighting Joe was not a name that Hooker particularly enjoyed, but it had made him a popular household name. Robert E. Lee actually uses it kind of ironically. It's kind of interesting to see, refers to him as Mr. Fighting Joe Hooker or MFJ. There was a reputation as a womanizer and a drinker that may or may not have been entirely valid. Some of the other officers in his command would criticize Hooker of having uh, women around in the headquarters. And in an era where we have a lot of individuals who are having this move toward more moral correctness uh, and against drinking and against womanizing, there are going to be some officers under him that are not going to look kindly on that. Hooker would realize the situation that the army was in losing men to desertion due to the poor conditions, supply, and disagreement with the Emancipation Proclamation. Things needed to be fixed in order for the army to operate properly. He improved the quality of the supply lines, which would lead to better fed and equipped men. I've already mentioned bread, but there would also be cooks assigned to various commands. Much like in the Confederate Army, furloughs would be given to soldiers so that they could go home. Morale turned for the better in the Army as a result. But there was some reorganization as well. Franz Siegel would be gone, as would other McClellan allies such as Franklin and Baldy Smith. Crucially for the Battle of Chancellorsville, Henry Hunt would actually be stripped of overall artillery command for the time being, which would take the centralization of that branch off the table. There would be great efforts to fix the ailing cavalry wing as well. George Stoneman would now be placed in command of the cavalry as a whole. This was a little late, but it would challenge the organization that was already occurring with the Confederacy that gave Jeb Stuart an advantage when compared with the Federals. Furthermore, there would be more inspection and drill in the Army. Security would be increased, and more of an emphasis on gathering of intelligence. In a future episode, we're actually going to mention the BMI, the Bureau of Military Intelligence that gets created around this time, and how... They do a really good job of actually providing accurate intel for the Army of the Potomac. In fact, unlike McClellan, there were actually going to be more conservative estimates of Confederate forces in the Army of Northern Virginia. This is going to play into our story as we will see. There were some really good redeeming qualities as well as some criticisms that we can make of Hooker, but... I would say that he sort of falls into a category that William Stark Rosecrans finds himself in, and that is that he has one pretty big mistake, and that gets him placed in a negative light as a result. But some of these changes that are being made to the army are going to be crucial to future campaigns. As far as the Confederate army goes, we already mentioned how Lee had dispersed his forces, and is having problems supplying his men with enough to eat. During the winter, that was a good idea, but as the campaigning season is close to opening, that would pose a problem. Now, the Confederates had not exactly been idle. We may have mentioned cavalry operations, especially on behalf of Jeb Stuart. Stuart, if you recall, had telegraphed Montgomery Meggs, complaining about the quality of the mules he was capturing from the Federal Army. Now, That is something that gets Jeb Stewart a little bit of criticism because he didn't have to send a telegram to Montgomery Meigs and effectively alert the Union Army of where he was because, you know, you know where he is if you're sending a telegraph. So he does get a little bit of criticism for that, and he could have done more in that raid uh, had he not done so. So we should always keep that in mind. Jeb Stewart always won for the flair and the dramatic. Fitzhugh Lee had probed the Federals to find out the strength in numbers. The 9th Corps could potentially be moving to the peninsula or to North Carolina, another motive for sending Longstreet further south in case the Union raids turned into a prelude for opening up a new front. Hood and Pickett, along with their divisions, were in a position that could potentially provide support if Hooker decided to begin an offensive. Also, crucially for the Chancellorsville campaign, they're not always going to be in that position. It's kind of like a quarterback who's going to take advantage of a defender who gets out of place, say, you know, you have a safety or like a linebacker there, if you pardon the football analogies, and they move a little bit, and then there provides an opening uh, for a nice completion. So we can kind of think about it like that they're caught out of position. Overall though, things had to be looking pretty good. But as we mentioned, Hooker is going to be a different kind of commander, and bring with him some surprises. I've actually held off on talking about Kelly's Ford until now, because I think it fits better with our schedule. Just know that these events actually occur on St. Patrick's Day, an episode or two back. We mentioned two key events, one being the reorganization of the Union Cavalry, the second being Fitzhugh Lee and his Heartwood Raid. During that raid, Fitzhugh had left a note for Union Cavalry Officer William Averill. Averell had been a classmate of Fitzhugh's at West Point. The Southerner would leave a note for Averell that read, I wish you would put up your sword, leave my state and go home. You ride a good horse, I ride a better. If you won't go home, return my visit, and bring me a sack of coffee. Well, Hooker wanted to flex the muscle that was his newly reorganized cavalry. Intelligence would report that Fitzhugh was stationed further up the Rappahannock at Culpeper. Averell would advance with two cavalry brigades with the intent of destroying the rebel cavalry. To do so, he would need to cross the Rappahannock at a place called Kelly's Ford. Originally, the plan was to infiltrate the rebel held bank early on the 17th, then proceed to battle against the main rebel cavalry, but there was something to be desired with the covert operation. As a result, a little over 100 rebel cavalrymen would hold off a number of charges by the federal counterparts. Eventually, they would be forced to retire, with a superior force holding the ford. Now, despite Averell being sent on essentially a search-and-destroy mission, he would decide to set up and wait for Lee on the defensive. Fitzhugh Lee would ride out with a force of about 800 men, as opposed to the 2,000 that Averell commanded. As part of their defense, the Federals would utilize a stone wall and a farm fence to their advantage. Recently, the Federal cavalry had been equipped with breech-loading carbines, so they could have an increased rate of fire should just go ahead and bookmark that idea for Gettysburg here as we get into the summer. Lee was good to the expectations of Averill and immediately decided to assault the wall. It was not easily flanked and could not be jumped by the horses, though. Rebels would eventually find a way through the house itself in an attempt to gain the enemy. Now John Pelham had been in the area and gravitated to the sounds of combat. He would join the Virginians in their charge, despite not having a command in the fight. Supporting the Federals was a battery of artillery. It was during this charge that a shell burst over Pelham, sending a piece of shrapnel into the back of his head. Despite lingering for some hours, Pelham would eventually die of his wounds. His body would be laid in state at Richmond before being returned to Alabama for burial. This is an unfortunate end for John Pelham. He was starting to rise through the ranks, and he really didn't need to be there, as mentioned. He just kind of joins into the fight. You remember him, of course, from Fredericksburg and his action in the Prospect Hill region, where he holds off, or at least supposedly holds off, the entire Union army with a single piece of artillery. In the battle, the Federals were getting the best of Lee and his troops. Alfred DeFee would form up his brigades as well as U.S. regulars from Marcus Reno into the field, directly challenging the Confederates. Attacks by Lee's men were beaten back, and at one point during the battle, Averell had a real opportunity to destroy the rebels on the field. Lee had employed a train whistle, though, to mimic potential reinforcements arriving. Averell decided to withdraw when faced with the potential rebel additions he would leave a message for his former West Point chum with a surgeon that read, Dear Fitz, here's your coffee. Here's your visit. How do you like it? Rebels had suffered 133 casualties as opposed to 78 on the Union side. Importantly, it was the first real cavalry-on-cavalry battle of the war. Not only had the Union held their own, but they could have won a pretty one-sided victory. This battle fits fairly well here with this episode because it is considered to be really the opening action of the Chancellorsville campaign. It is kind of interesting to think, as mentioned, that this is really the first time we've had a legitimate, larger-scale cavalry-on-cavalry action. We've had some smaller actions here and there, but overall we just haven't had quite the large numbers that we're going to be seeing at brandy station and trevilian station down the road and don't worry we're going to get there you probably haven't heard of trevilian station but it is up there with brandy station in terms of the largest cavalry contest of the war i do want to spend some time to go over hooker's plan of action which technically kicks off next week but we do have a handful of events to go over so Lincoln does travel south to Falmouth and will review Hooker's army. He did do a very good job, as said, of reorganization and revitalization. Lincoln would offer some advice, in light of the defeat at Charleston, which we will close out on. The front in which they would potentially win the war was directly before them. Burnside had opted for a frontal assault, and we know exactly how that went. Hooker would wish to avoid a similar fate. And so would listen to Lincoln's suggestion, thinking about a way in which he could flank Lee. There's going to be an emphasis in other armies as well about this wanting to avoid another Fredericksburg with another frontal assault. There's going to be more emphasis on flank attacks and not trying to attack directly at a fixed position of the enemy. This is kind of how the war evolves in terms of tactics. And it is also interesting to see in light of these disasters, especially in the eastern portion of the war, you know, nobody wants to have another first Manassas. And that really wasn't anybody's fault, you know, both the armies were particularly green and it could have been the Confederates that end up with a big defeat as opposed to the Union army. But on the flip side of that, you know, after Fredericksburg, nobody wants another Fredericksburg. We're going to see that with Rosecrans in his campaigns coming up here later in the year. So, we can see how this war is still kind of a learning process for the armies. Intelligence had given Longstreet as a ways away from the main army. In addition, the artillery and cavalry were dispersed for the rebels. If Hooker could cross the Rappahannock, he could make things extremely hard for the Confederates. There were two things he could do this with first, he was creating a light division. Much like the French army had, in a more official sense than Stonewall's foot cavalry, though. AP Hill also has a light division, but I've also seen in a little bit more of a snarky historical sense in some sources that say, you know, what exactly made them the light division, we don't know. Second, he could use his new cavalry wing under George Stoneman. The plan would call for Stoneman at the head of 9,500 cavalry to flank Lee to his left and then get into a position at Gordonsville. From there, the infantry would follow, cutting off Lee's supplies and opening up Richmond for Hooker. Fighting Joe was so confident, he corrected the president, saying not if he was to get to Richmond, but when. Lee had conveniently decided to send Grumble Jones into the valley to raid against Robert Milroy at Winchester, which we are going to get into in a future episode. Fitzhugh Lee was operating in that direction as well, trying to get the attention of the Federals. It would be the perfect time for the Union to strike. Stoneman received a specific instruction, mostly outlining the aggressiveness in which his orders were to be carried out. Stoneman, though, dabbied a little too long on the kickoff date of the 12th of April, and then would see rain the next day, swelling potential crossing points. Thus, the planned attack, for the time being, needed to be scrubbed. Unfortunately for Lincoln, it seemed that Hooker was going to be in a similar vein to McClellan. Now that we have set up the general course of action, we will pick up this action in the future. When we last left off in Charleston, South Carolina, Beauregard had seen some brief success that broke the blockade. If you remember the conclusion of that action, Samuel Dupont did not entertain these notions though, the blockade back on soon after. The goal from the US Navy was not simply to conduct a successful blockade, but rather it was to capture the city where the war began. To do this, there needed to be a good amount of ironclad vessels. DuPont had been gathering the Passaic class ironclads, as well as additional vessels, both of wood and iron, to make a potential assault. New Ironsides, Passaic, Montauk, Patapsco, and Weehawken, were joined by Monitor class vessels, Catskill, Nantucket, and Nenhat. The new Ironsides, is a particularly interesting vessel it's going to be the first real sea going ironclad so in this way the U.S. Navy is catching up to the rest of the world and we'll talk about the new iron sides here later in the year. There was also the addition of an experimental ship the USS Keokuk which had two fixed turrets as opposed to the rotating turrets we talked about with the Passaic and Monitor class vessels. At the very least the ships would have 15 and 11-inch Dahlgren guns, giving it a formidable arsenal. DuPont would delay from January, making sure he had the full assortment of ironclads. In April, things were finally ready, and Wells was eager for another victory orchestrated by the Navy. But things were not going to be so easy. Fort Sumter still protected the harbor as one of the primary defenses. While made of the older construction which had its flaws, as we have discussed in previous episodes, the fort had been armed with guns by the Confederates. Additionally, there was Battery B, Fort Moultrie, Battery Beauregard, Castle Pickney, and Fort Wagner, amongst other positions. Combining all of these works would make it a tough time for any invading naval force. PGT Beauregard still commanded the defenses, and things had to look positive. He had done work to strengthen these defenses, whether earth or of the older construction, and he had over a hundred guns that could be brought to bear on attackers. Furthermore, he was given a good idea that there was an attack coming. DuPont had left Port Royal with his fleet, a fact well known. In addition, there had been much in terms of activity on the part of the Union Navy something was definitely up. DuPont would arrive at Charleston and set in motion his plan of attack on April 7th. Of course, there had been a plan for a combined infantry assault on James Island. James Island, as you recall, had been the target of the Battle of Secessionville, which was designed as an attempt to gain a foothold in the surrounding defenses of Charleston. DuPont divided up his ships into two squadrons, Reportedly, John Erickson had designed a kind of giant rake that could be attached to the monitors, but the captains would decline usage of the device due to the hampering that it took on the mobility of the vessels. Around 1pm, the assault would begin with Squadron 1, consisting of Weehawken, Passaic, Montauk, and Patapsco. New Ironsides would lead the remaining vessels in the second squad. As the first squad approached, they would hear music from a band inside Fort Sumter. Around 3 p.m., guns would start to fire on the attacking Federals. John Rogers of the Weehawken would discontinue the assault due to a string of torpedoes blocking the path. This would bring the Union ships well shy of their target of Fort Sumter. Interestingly enough, the Federals were trying to steam past the batteries and fire on the exposed side of the fort, taking a play out of the Confederates' book from back in 1861. It was around this time that new Ironsides would lose control. She was still of a new design, and suffered from a failure to the rudder, causing her to almost run aground and be removed from the fight. Unfortunately for DuPont, this was his flagship so it was necessary to signal the two squadrons not to follow the lead of the new Ironsides. Once signaled, the Passaics and the Monitors were able to engage the fortifications. 36 guns from Sumter were able to respond to the Federals with good effect. Two ships from the squadrons did experience problems with the gun carriages within the turrets, and there were loose screws, which would be an issue when receiving fire from the Confederate guns. If you remember, we mentioned this as being a problem with the USS Galena. During the fight, the USS Keokuk would steam into a position to better fire on the rebels. With all the ships finding it hard to maneuver in the channel, the Keokuk actually found itself in a position to receive crossfire from multiple rebel positions within the harbor. 70 shots hit the new Union ship, several below the waterline. As a result, she would begin bringing on water, which forced her to withdraw. DuPont realized that the rest of the fleet would need to follow the same suit as the Keokuk. By around 5 p.m., the last of the squadrons had withdrawn. Admiral DuPont would be eager to renew the assault and take another crack at the defenders, but the rest of his ships were in no condition to continue. Many had sustained damage some to their turrets or gun ports. The captains would be blamed as the reason the assault would not continue, but further action may have indeed led to more damages to the ironclads. DuPont would inform the land forces that there would be no renewed efforts, so there would be no army involvement on James Island as a result. Keokuk would sink during the night as if to emphasize the point. Overall, casualties were light. The Union lost 21 wounded and 1 killed, while the Confederates lost 5 killed and 8 wounded. The fire superiority of the Confederates was fully on display, especially when compared to the Ironclads, who were only armed with 2 guns each. 2,200 shots were hurled at the attacking squadrons, compared to only 136 lobbed at the defenders. Not all of the heavy guns were employed by the Confederates, leading Beauregard to announce a great victory. The failed assault would be the end of DuPont, the admiral being replaced later in the summer. It was very clear to the Federals that Charleston was not going to be taken simply by the Navy alone. It would have to involve the Army in land assaults as well. The attempts of which we will soon see, especially here later in the summer. I think by this time in the war, we definitely see a shift in the emphasis of the U.S. Navy. In 1861, as you remember, most of the successes were made by the Union Navy. Most of the headway the Union had in terms of gaining ground against the Confederacy was made by the Union Navy. That leads us into 1862, where Farragut is able to capture the most important city of the Confederacy, New Orleans, essentially without any kind of army support. And there's all these efforts to try to duplicate that success, whether it was here at Charleston or trying to take Vicksburg by the river fleet. You can even go back to Forts Henry and Donelson as a really great example. The Navy was primarily responsible for Fort Henry falling. Sort of on the flip side of that, you could say that the Confederates putting the fort where it was, where it could be easily flooded, was also a great contributor to the Union Navy and their success, but regardless, when trying to duplicate that success at Fort Donaldson, uh, the Navy gets sent the setback and then Grant is going to have to use his ground troops in order to drive the point home. The point is though that the Confederate harbors that are still left, that aren't in Union hands, they're going to be putting more efforts into making sure that they have modern earthworks, modern fortifications, heavy guns. They're going to be using torpedoes. They're going to make it a lot harder than it probably would have been in 1861 to take the harbor and the town via assault. So as we mentioned with the Union tactics in the Army of the Potomac changing, so too we see a shift in tactics in these theaters as well in terms of naval operations. With that, we can close out this week. We started to set up the Chancellorsville campaign. We talked about the changes that Hooker has made to the Army and the cavalry action at Kelly's Ford. There's been another attempt to take Charleston from the sea, which has not ended in success for the Union Navy. Next week, we have a whole bunch of small events we will head to Tennessee, as well as southern Virginia. In addition, we are going to look in at Louisiana and northern Alabama, operations that are going to go toward assisting Grant's drive on Vicksburg. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback's always welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.